Skywatchers, thanks for listening to our Look Up podcast. I'm Greg. And I'm Dara. And we're going to highlight what to look for in the sky in September in our Cosmic Diary. So when you're looking at faint objects such as stars, nebulae, the Milky Way and other galaxies, it is important to allow your eyes to adapt to the dark so that you can achieve better night vision. You should allow about 15 minutes for your eyes to become sensitive in the dark And remember not to look at your mobile phone or any other bright device when you're stargazing. And if you are using a star app on your phone, then switch on the red night vision mode. The summer triangle star pattern or asterism sits high in the south or southwestern sky throughout the month in the early evening. The bright trio of stars, Vega, Deneb and Altair, mark out a triangle which lies right over a portion of the Great Rift a complex of dark dust clouds that appear to divide the cloudy band of light that is the Milky Way. The galactic disk of our galaxy can be seen on a dark night with just your eyes arching across the sky. Now further to the southeast, the constellation of Pegasus sits proudly in the sky. It's easily identifiable by searching for the four bright stars making up a square shape known as the Great Square of Pegasus. About halfway between Altair and Markab, the star at the bottom right corner of the Great Square, lays M15, the Pegasus Globular Cluster. This cluster is home to over 100,000 stars and is estimated to be one of the oldest known globular clusters. And it's bright enough that it approaches the naked eye limit with very good viewing conditions. But preferably, it's far more easily observed with a pair of binoculars or a small telescope where you'll see something like a fuzzy-looking star. On the evening of the 12th of September, the young crescent moon will sit above Venus in the southwestern sky just after sunset. Return to your viewing spot at the same time over the following evenings to see the moon move across the sky as a result of it orbiting around our planet. By the 13th, the moon will be closer to Jupiter, nearer the south, and on the 14th will have passed the gas giant. Then on the evening of the 15th, look below the moon and closer to the horizon, you could spot Antares, the bright red star of the constellation of Scorpio. Now Antares is a star that lies close to the ecliptic. This is the sun's apparent path across the sky throughout the year. And since our solar system is like a flat disk, the moon and planet's celestial paths lie close to the ecliptic too. And this means that we often find the moon and planets close beside stars like Antares and others which lie close to the ecliptic too, like Aldebaran in the constellation of Taurus, Spica in the constellation of Virgo, and even Regulus in the constellation of Leo. The moon reaches first quarter on the 16th, a great time to look for craters on the moon using binoculars or a telescope and pointing them towards the terminator, the boundary between the light and dark sides on the moon. By the 17th, the moon will have nestled close beside Saturn in the constellation of Sagittarius. Look to the south in the early evening. Not too far from the pair, further to the east, you'll find Mars in the constellation of Capricornus, another of the naked eye planets. You'll be able to spot Saturn and Mars throughout the month in the south. And after a very hot and bright summer, we're heading into autumn. The start of the season is marked by astronomers as the autumnal equinox, which falls on the 23rd of September. The autumnal equinox in the northern hemisphere, for us in the UK, 
marks when the sun moves from being overhead in the northern hemisphere and crosses below the celestial equator, where the sun will lie directly above the southern hemisphere. On the day of the equinox, we will have approximately the same number of hours in daylight and approximately the same number of hours in darkness. And from then on, our days will begin to grow shorter and our nights longer until we reach the winter solstice in December. By the end of the month, on the 30th, the waning gibbous moon will be beside the red giant star Aldebaran in the constellation of Taurus. Look towards the east after midnight. Just below the constellation of Taurus, Orion the Hunter is starting to creep above the horizon, and over the next few months, it will become a more dominant constellation in our winter sky to look out for. If you take any photos of the night sky, please do tweet them in to at ROGAstronomers. You may also want to check out our night sky highlights blog on our website, rmg.co.uk. But for now, it's time for our cosmic news. Hello again. So welcome back to the Cosmic News part of our podcast. And this is the part where myself and Greg both pick a news story that has broken in the past month that we think is incredibly exciting. And we're going to tell you about those stories and we'd like you to vote for your favourite, which we'll explain will happen on our Twitter poll, which we'll put up at the beginning of the month. So to start off this month, Greg, you've got a story for us. Mm-hmm. Hit us with it. Okay. So, uh... Our star, we're all very familiar with it, Uh, it is the best studied star in the universe for a fairly obvious reason. It's really close and all the other ones aren't. We'd hope so, right? Absolutely, yes. So it's nice and easy to study. Um, And uh, in fact, in one of the podcasts we had not too long ago, um, we talked about how only relatively recently have we been seeing, beginning to see the pictures of the surfaces of other stars because we've only just managed to reach the resolution in telescopes to be able to study the surfaces of other stars. So in some ways, our sun is not only the easiest to study, it's almost the only one that we can in certain respects. And although you say easy to study, we're still talking about, <laughs> you know, looking at an object which is really far away, we have yep. to use lots of different techniques in yep. order to study it. Absolutely. In astronomy, everything is relative, even easy. So, uh, yes, we, the important thing about our sun is that we can apply what we learn about our sun to other stars, at least to a certain extent. We know that other stars aren't always exactly the same, but certain things we can try to move across. Um, But there's actually much that we still don't know about stars, even our own sun. And one of them is trying to understand the difference between the surface of the sun and its atmosphere. So the surface of the sun, or what we would normally refer to as the surface, is called the photosphere. It's the bit that we can see. Not that I recommend you look towards the sun, but it is the bit that we can see. Um, It's 5,500 degrees Celsius, so pretty hot. Um, The higher atmosphere, though, is called the corona. That extends millions of uh, kilometres out from the the surface of the sun. And it's a few million degrees Celsius. So if I put my toast there in the morning, I'd I'd have a pretty crispy piece of bread. Well, you'd think so. But actually, believe it or not, you wouldn't. Because it's so, uh, what we call rarefied. It's um, so diffuse. There's so little gas up there that actually if you could ignore the fact that you're being radiated by the sun itself, uh, you could pass through gas that hot, but that rare, without any trouble. You wouldn't notice that it was hot. It would still be practically deep space, which is very, very cold. So even though the gas is very, very hot, in reality, 
you can don't still feel it. the effect of it. It does seem pretty backwards, though, the sense that the, the layer we can see is a little bit cooler, but then yeah. when we go further out from the sun, it's a bit hotter. In fact, it's very confusing from uh, an understanding of the laws of thermodynamics. So the laws of thermodynamics state that you can't raise the temperature of an object passively, so without doing something extra, um, through radiation from a colder object. Uh, that means that, uh, believe it or not, you can, so you can, you can set uh, fire to a piece of paper with a magnifying glass and the light from the sun. What you might not be aware of is that you can't do that with moonlight because the surface of the moon is only about 100 degrees Celsius uh, when it's in strong sunlight. So it's actually impossible to set fire to uh, a piece of paper using just a magnifying glass and the moon. And it's for exactly the same reason. The surface of the moon is not hot enough to do that and a magnifying glass, no matter how good it is, will not be able to achieve higher temperature on the object that it's beaming the light to. So the question is, how can uh, the surface of the sun, which is much cooler, somehow heat the atmosphere of the sun, which is much, much hotter, many hundreds of times hotter. You need some sort of active heating source. And there are two theories, competing theories at the moment to, to do that. There's something called wave heating, which is a bit like sound waves that we have in the air, which is what's enabling you to hear me at the moment. Um, and that somehow these waves, which similar to sound waves but not exactly the same, uh, would move outwards through the atmosphere of the sun, dissipate in the atmosphere of the sun and transfer energy from the, the surface up to the, um, to the atmosphere. So and some that sort would of vibration. Yeah, absolutely. The other possibility is something called magnetic reconnection. It's a bit more complicated, a um, little, little bit more difficult to, uh, to understand. Um, but think of magnetic fields as being uh, lots of elastic Okay. Um, if you have a bar magnet, then the, the field of a, a bar magnet is relatively simple. It's just lots and lots of sort of ellipses or circles. Um, and each one of those can be represented as an elastic band. Now, normally, those elastic bands, those field lines, they can be stretched, they can move around, but they can't snap. Otherwise, you snap the elastic band. Sure. Um, in magnetic reconnection, that rule doesn't necessarily apply. So what happens is the elastic band gets stretched, snaps, and immediately reconnects to another elastic band somewhere else in the, in the system. And that's what happens with the magnetic field lines. And when you do that, that snapping and reconnecting allows energy to pass from one place to another through magnetic energy. Interesting. Yeah. The problem is we don't know which of those two theories is correct. We don't even know if either of them is actually the right, the right one. one. We also don't fully understand the, the solar wind. This is material being blown off by the surface of the sun out into the rest of the solar system. Uh, so we really want to want better understand its source, its properties, all these sort of things. And the solar wind does kind of affect us here on the Earth, and Absolutely. that's why we're interested in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, it uh, rams into the magnetic field of the Earth. With the magnetic field of the Earth not here, then uh, our atmosphere would be stripped off slowly over time. Um, it would also uh, irradiate us with all sorts of cosmic rays and other nasty stuff. So we're very glad that the magnetic field is here. So all of these problems still existing with the sun. So this is where my new story comes in. This is the, all about the Parker Solar Probe. Ah, yes. we've had lots about it. Yes, absolutely. So the Parker Solar Probe was launched in the early hours of Sunday morning, from where we are here uh, recording this at the moment, August the 12th is when it was launched. 
um, on the Delta IV heavy rocket. It's a very, very large rocket needed to be launched out into space in order to, to take this thing up into space. Um, it's actually the first NASA probe to be named after a living person. All the other ones have been posthumous. Uh, this one was named after Eugene Parker, um, a solar physicist who is 91 years of age. Um, and he was one of, if not the first person, to suggest the existence of the solar wind in the first place and to, uh, to work on things like the solar corona heating problem. So what on earth causes that huge heating effect in the atmosphere of the sun? And it's part of a mission that was, in a way, sort of first conceived about 60 years ago, um, although it's been several times dropped, completely re-envisioned, revised, and uh, entirely new people, of course, working on it. It's no surprise, though. Yeah. We're talking about sending something to the sun. Yeah, absolutely. So there have been a number of attempts uh, to, to send solar probes of some description. Um, Helios probes are one of those. Um, and, but this one is going to go far, far closer, far closer to the sun than anything it has before. It's going to spend seven years orbiting the sun, uh, getting closer and closer, eventually reaching about six million kilometres above the surface, which, bearing in mind the Earth is 150 million kilometres away from the sun, gives you an idea of how much closer this thing is going. Very, very close indeed. Uh, now, due to a quirk of spaceflight dynamics, it's actually in some ways harder to go into the solar system than it is to go out. So heading off to uh, Mars, heading off to deep space, relatively simple. Uh, going in towards the inner planets or even towards the very, uh, very centre, towards the sun, is actually really quite tough. I'm assuming that's because you're likely to get pulled in by the sun. Uh, no, actually, no? believe it or not, it's the other way around. So the, you would think that the sun's pull would be helping you, it would be pulling you in towards the sun. It should be relatively simple. Let a spacecraft go, it'll eventually just fall straight to the sun. Um, but it doesn't do that for exactly the same reasons the Earth doesn't fall straight to the sun. If you are already moving, which, is, which the Earth is, it's moving around in its orbit, um, then the pull of the sun, all that does is it pulls you into a circular or elliptical motion around the sun. So we'd need another force to basically take us out of orbit. Yeah, absolutely. You need to, in a way, you, basically you need to slow yourself down. That's the strange thing. So you need to slow yourself down so that you will start to fall towards the sun which is actually quite difficult to do, and you need to, to put more what we call delta V in in order to do that. So that's more energy, more thrust in. Um, to shed something called angular momentum, this is the, the quantity that tells you effectively how fast you're spinning around an object, all sorts of rotational motion. Um, so if an object orbiting around the sun speeds up, then its orbit will widen the other end of the orbit. So if you set your rocket going um, at one particular point in its orbit for a short period of time, it's the other side of its orbit which will get wider. If you do the opposite, if you slow down, then the other side of your orbit will actually shrink and get closer to the sun. And that's what the Parker Solar Probe is doing. It's in fact not entirely using a rocket because that would be very, very expensive. Instead, what it's doing is it's actually using the planet Venus. It's doing uh, the opposite of a gravitational slingshot. So the Voyager probes, when they headed out in, of, uh, the, out of the, the solar system, they used the fact that all of the planets were quite nicely lined up at the time, and they could gain energy from each movement around the, the planet, change its orbit, and also make it go faster and head out 
product of the solar system. Uh, the Parker Solar Probe is actually going to use Venus as an angular momentum dump. It's going to drop some speed, drop some angular momentum onto Venus, slightly speeding the planet up, believe it or not, but not enough to be even vaguely noticeable, completely negligible. Um, and through seven individual gravitational slingshots with the planet Venus, it's going to get closer and closer, closer to the Sun over the course of seven years, um, and 24 orbits around the Sun in total. It's going to get far closer than any other man-made object, and it's going to have to bear temperatures that would melt steel. So it's 1,370 degrees Celsius. Oh, wow. So there is a, a thick uh, carbon composite shield, a new technology, um, that is hiding the, uh, the, the, the probe behind it. Um, and when it gets closest to the sun, it will be out of contact, so we will not be able to do anything with it for several days. Um, but that, of course, is the most dangerous part when it's so close to the sun. So it has to be able to align itself with the sun to avoid any of the instruments being in any way overheated. Uh, overheated or, yeah. Because if it's misaligned, the satellite will melt in a, in a matter of seconds. It's remarkably quick that this will happen. A few oh, tens wow. of seconds and the, the, the satellite will be inoperable. But that's not the only record the Parker Solar Probe is going to beat. Um, humans love speed. Don't they they uh, love going faster and faster and uh, they've been trying to do it for centuries. Uh, spacecraft are some of the fastest things uh, that we've ever produced. In fact, they are currently, they hold the record for the fastest thing we've ever produced, um, which is fairly reasonable. First of all, there's no air in space slowing you down, more friction, you can get faster speeds. But also, if you want to get anywhere in a reasonable period of time, you kind of need to go fast. Yeah, space is, yeah, the tendency to be like that. Yeah, it's big. That's the problem, absolutely. Um, my favourite speed story, I, I can't resist telling you about this one, though. my favourite speed story um, is also one of my favourite uh, stories that is not entirely accurate. <laughs> okay. uh, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you all about it, and then I'll tell you why it's inaccurate. Um, it's the, for a while, it was thought that the fastest thing that had ever been produced by man uh, was a, a manhole cover. Yeah, um, a kind of special manhole cover, much, much larger than ones that we are used to on our roads and uh, pavements. Uh, it was to cover the underground testing facility for an atomic bomb, for a nuclear bomb. Um, and the idea was that the, the nuclear bomb would go off, it would underground, um, this is of course when the nuclear test power treaty was already in effect, so you can't do it to above the, the ground or, um, or in space or in the atmosphere. Um, so all of the testing had to be underground, and uh, the manhole cover was just supposed to be the top of this vast mine shaft, just stopping anything from getting out, basically. Uh, there's something went wrong. The explosion was about ten times bigger than they expected it oh, to that's be. That's science for you. Um, and the manhole cover was hit by a vast explosion from underneath and accelerated, just lifted off. There was a, a camera watching the manhole cover that was running at a thousand frames per second, so one frame every millisecond. The manhole cover is in one frame and is not in the next frame. So it moved so fast that it disappeared within one millisecond from the, the view of this video camera. Uh, the scientist who was in charge of this did a rough calculation for how fast this thing might have ended up going based on various different things. Um, and it's six times the escape velocity of the Earth. 
which is about as fast as any spacecraft we've ever sent. And that was in 1957, so that was before the vast majority of the space race. That hadn't really started yet. Rockets were very much in their infancy. Except it's almost certainly not true. Most of what I just said, I know, most of what I said did happen. The explosion did occur, the manhole cover did disappear within one frame of the... It did go very fast. Um, It's just it almost certainly didn't reach that speed. What happened was it hit the atmosphere instantly and burnt up. Almost certainly. The the speed that it went at was so fast that it would have just disappeared. Um, It was... the, The... the myth was that it might have been the first man-made object in space because at that speed it, it could would have left, have left. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it almost certainly didn't. The Parker Space Probe is going to go far, far, far faster than that. Um, the fastest object that we've ever produced is actually a solar probe. What happens is the closer you get to the sun in an orbit, the faster you go. Um, the Parker Solar Probe is going to go far, far, far closer than any of the solar probes we've had before which means it's going to be travelling at its fastest point at 700,000 kilometres per hour, um, or 430,000 miles per hour, uh, which is almost three times as fast as the, la- as the fastest object we've ever produced. That is so crazy. It's going to easily, easily, easily beat the records that we have. But of course, the main thing is not trying to go very fast. It's not trying to get close to the sun. It's trying to keep the it's probe alive. It's trying to get the probe alive and get all of this wonderful data. Hopefully, we'll be able to understand the sun better, understand the corona of the sun better, and be able to apply that to all the rest of the stars out in the rest of the universe. And I'm, I'm assuming we're going to have to wait a few months until the probe actually gets to the sun. So I think it's later this year? Yeah, actually, it's going to be remarkably quick compared to other um, uh, space probes. Uh, for example, New Horizons took... Uh, years before it started sending back any data because it was heading out to the most distant parts of the uh, solar system. For this, it's not going very far, so it's going to start sending back data in just a few months' time. Well, hey, we'll look forward to hearing from the Parker Solar Space Probe and hoping that it hasn't disintegrated, melted, and that it, yeah, it has got there safely. So what a lovely story you've picked for us this month. Um, I've got something that celebrates a little bit about telescopes too. So we've got plenty of space telescopes in space, producing lovely images that we're used to seeing in textbooks, magazines and all sorts. Um, But actually I think we forget about some of the the day-to-day stuff that these telescopes are doing and the incredible things they've actually discovered. So uh, my story this month is about the Spitzer Space Telescope, which will be celebrating its 15th birthday on the 25th of August. Um, So yeah, and it is, it's it's actually a really big feat because this telescope was only intentionally uh, supposed to last for about two and a half years. That's pretty good. So it's gone about six times as far as it should have. Um, and it is one of the what we call the four great observatories in space. So I think most of us have probably heard of the Hubble Space Telescope. It was the first of these four to be launched back in 1990, the year mm. that we were born. Oh, yes. Um, and it looks at different wavelengths. So it's looking at near ultraviolet light, optical light, the light that we see with our eyes, and then near infrared light too. So it's got a little bit of a range of what kind of light it can detect from other objects it's looking at. Um, I actually talked, I think, about this, the Hubble Space Telescope celebrating its 27th birthday uh, back in our previous podcast this year. So have a look on Look Up if you want to hear about that. The next one to be launched was the Compton Gamma Ray Telescope. That was launched uh, just a year later in 1991, and that looks at mostly gamma ray light, but also a little bit of X-ray light too. 
Uh, after that, there were a few more years, so we had to wait until July 1999, and then the third of these four great telescopes, the Chandra X-ray telescope, was launched. And when it was launched, it was a hundred times more sensitive than any other previous X-ray telescope had been up to that point. So a huge, huge feat. And then finally, in 2003, the Spitzer Infrared Telescope was launched. And together, these four NASA telescopes actually help us build a much better picture of our universe. Uh, like we've mentioned in several of our podcasts, looking with just one type of light doesn't allow us to see very much. It's by collecting all these different types of light and putting them together that we can learn more about those objects. So we've got Hubble, which is optical and UV. Mm -hmm. We've got uh, Compton gamma rays. Yep. Gamma rays. We've got Chandra, which is X-rays. What's Spitzer looking at? Spitzer's looking at infrared lights. Uh, uh, so it's looking at light that we're actually giving off with our bodies. Um, infrared light is shorter wavelength light compared to visible light. So things that are a bit colder, uh, or relatively colder as we might speak, so the temperature of humans, the temperature of maybe objects that we find in our day-to-day -day life, they are, they are hot enough essentially to glow bright in infrared light. Yep. But optical light, the light we see with our eyes, is of uh, a shorter wavelength. So you actually have to be at a much higher temperature in order to give out or radiate optical light. So we ourselves are not bright beacons of optical light. We're simply not hot enough, but stars are. And that's why we can see stars with optical light. So infrared actually helps us see things in space that our eyes necessarily can't see. Um, the thing about infrared light is a lot of it is absorbed by the Earth's atmosphere. So ground-based telescopes or infrared telescopes that we have on the Earth, and there are a few of them, they have to contend with things like the daily temperature variations of our planet, that kind of heat that we have from our planet. They've also got to contend with the fact that our atmosphere is taking away so much of that infrared light from space that we're finding it harder to detect. But Spitzer doesn't have this problem. Since it's launched into space, it has a, a, a mirror or um, its optics is actually less than a, a meter wide uh, in diameter. And that is still more sensitive than a 10 meter wide mirror here on the Earth detecting infrared light too. So it goes a great way to showing that how important sometimes it is to put our telescopes into space. Now the three other great observatories that I mentioned at the beginning, they all have geocentric orbits. So they are orbiting around our Earth. Now Spitzer is an, what we call a heliocentric Earth trailing orbit. So heliocentric is actually orbiting around the Sun, and Earth trailing means that it is kind of behind the Earth as we orbit the Sun. So essentially, um, Spitzer is orbiting in the same path that the Sun is, or the Earth is around the Sun, just it's orbiting a bit slower. It takes about 375 days. And so every year it's trailing the Earth. It's getting a little bit further behind the Earth in its orbit. But this was the first spacecraft ever to be put into an orbit like this. Um, and actually, if you've heard of the Kepler Space Telescope, uh, the telescope, or the best telescope to date actually, that we have had to detect exoplanets, the planets far beyond our solar system, that was actually put into an Earth trailing orbit too back in 2009. Now, the advantages of having the Spitzer telescope in space is that it has a naturally cooler environment in this Earth trailing orbit. It's not close to the Earth's heat. Um, and it also, it benefits from a wider field of view of the sky. It's not blocked out with some, uh, some of the Earth in its view. And the reason we need to keep an infrared telescope cool is because the instruments themselves will radiate a bit of infrared light that can actually 
uh, kind of affect the the detections that this uh, the the infrared telescope is making. I think my my favourite quote about infrared um, astronomy is trying to do infrared astronomy on the ground is like trying to do optical astronomy with, in the daytime with a telescope made of glow tubes because the entire satellite, the, the entire system glows with infrared, infrared. light. It yeah. does, that's actually a really good analogy. I won't forget that one. <laughs> So, like I mentioned at the start, 15 years it's been celebrating, uh, for its 15th birthday at least, um, only expected to last for about two and a half years, but uh, since it has extended its initial lifetime, they've actually separated its mission into three different parts. So it started off in what was called the cold mission. As we explained, these instruments need to be kept really, really cold. So they were deliberately cooled by a liquid helium coolant that left the instruments just above absolute zero. So we're talking about minus 270 degrees. But of course, it had to take this liquid coolant with it. So eventually it ran out. So about five and a half years is how long this cold mission lasted. And after that, it entered what is known as the warm mission. So from 2009 to 2016, after the coolant had run out, um, some of the instruments had just stopped working, so they couldn't operate. So the, the spectrograph, the photometer, they stopped working, but two of the four detectors on the infrared array camera, they continued to work. So everything that we've had from Spitzer since then are from just those two detectors that have continued to work. And then after 2016, it entered the beyond phase. <laughs> this reflects how the telescope now operates beyond its original scope. It's actually managed to do things that scientists didn't even imagine that it could do when it was first launched. So it's now actually floating away from the Earth in this Earth-trailing orbit. That means communication is getting even harder with this telescope. And it's becoming more challenging, most notably because of its design. So due to its design, it's now moving, uh, kind of trailing the Earth's orbit to where it's approaching being on the other side of the sun compared nice. to the Earth. So what's happening is its, on, its antennas are having to be more of a higher angle, ending up pointing towards the sun in order to be pointing oh. to the Earth, um, which doesn't help. That's it exposes good. the telescope yeah. to more heat. And due to that design as well, um, the solar panels are actually receiving less sunlight. They're on the opposite side, yeah, yeah. so there is more stress on the battery. So Spitzer is having a pretty challenging time <laughs> at present. But I've picked five of what I think are some of the best discoveries that Spitzer has made. Um, and hopefully, there's some of them will actually be a bit of a surprise to most of us, as they were to me. So... The first discovery uh, that I've listed is that it discovered three of the exoplanets around the TRAPPIST-1 system. So I'm sure many of us heard of the breaking news story, seven Earth-like exoplanets found around you know, a distant world or a distant star. Um, back in 2015, it was the Spitzer instruments that actually helped detect the first three of those exoplanets. And then in 2017, the other four were confirmed. Um, and we actually covered this story, the Trappist-1 story, in our 2017 podcast back in April. Um, its data, though, the data from Spitzer itself, has actually helped scientists confirm that these are rocky exoplanets. And it's also helped make these seven exoplanets the best understood ones that we have to date. Um, so, yeah, using the transit method, looking at the planets passing in front of its star and collecting the kind of dip in its brightness, the Spitzer Space Telescope has actually helped us do something that scientists didn't even think it could do when it was launched. 
The second discovery is that uh, Spitzer has actually surpassed expectations once again. So one of the hopes was that it would be able to look so far away into our universe, looking very far back in time, to discover some of the earliest galaxies. So it was hoping to have a look at galaxies that are probably about 12 billion light years away. Um, but with the help of this, the uh, Hubble Space Telescope, another one of those great observatories, it discovered a galaxy known as GNZ11. This, to date, is the most distant galaxy we have ever found. Um, and again, we actually covered this story uh, in one of our previous podcasts. We're going on a bit of a Oh, we're doing well. Trail, yeah. Yes, Looking back. Tour of our yeah, we, Spitzer was never mentioned in any no, of these, no. um, so it's great to see that you know this was behind it all. Um, it does have a weird name. So GN uh, is to do with the Goods North field yeah. of galaxies, and then the Z11 is to do with redshift. So yes. it's like a redshift of 11. Um, it is very distant. It is really, really <laughs> distant. This galaxy is 13.4 billion light years away. But that corresponds to a proper distance, because that light has taken time to travel to us, of about 32 billion light years. So that's how far away that galaxy is believed to be. And like mentioned, to date, it's still the most distant galaxy that we've ever found. Okay, so our third discovery, and this one was a real surprise to me, um, it discovered something known as buckyball molecules. Have you ever heard of these? Yes, I have, yes. They're really funny. So. First of all, buckyball is a really funny name, but actually it's short for something known as Buckminster Fullerene. Um, so Spitzer was uh, the first telescope to actually observe these in space. So it observed it in the very early cold mission part uh, within the first five years. Um, these buckyballs are basically molecules that are made of 60 carbon atoms and they're arranged into an almost sphere-like shape, a bit like a football. football yeah. So the, the carbon atoms are arranged to kind of make hexagonal and pentagon shapes, yeah. um, but it is a hollow molecule. So it has that structure on the outside, but it's not full of anything necessarily on the inside. Um, I kind of like to think of it as, you know, those collapsing sphere toys that you yes, get, yeah, a little bit yeah. like that, expand it out, the, the molecule doesn't itself collapse, but the, the shape is essentially what it might be like. Now these buckyball uh, molecules, they were actually first generated on the Earth by Sir Harry Croto and his team, and they actually won the Nobel Prize in Chemistry for this back in 1996. But applications of this molecule are still being researched. Scientists think this is a really exciting molecule. We're just trying to find applications for it. Um, one really interesting thing about this molecule, though, is that we think it can act as a stable kind of cage and enclose material within it. Now, evidence for this theory has come from uh, meteorites. So we've actually found these buckyball molecules inside meteorites, which are actually carrying extraterrestrial gases. So perhaps that is one application of those in the future. We're getting a little bit more exciting now. So our fourth discovery, uh, Spitzer produced a 360 degrees infrared panorama map of the Milky Way, the first that was ever done. Um, it spent over 10 years collecting about 2 million infrared snapshots of different parts of our sky to be able to build up this 360 map. And if we printed out all the snapshots that it took, we would require a billboard that's larger than Wembley Stadium. So it took an incredible amount of pictures. Um, and from this uh, data, scientists actually created uh, a 20 gigapixel map. And you can actually go online and have a look at this map and zoom into different parts of it as well. So it's really high resolution. Um, and the reason that 
uh, it was really good that Spitzer did this is because using optical lights, so using telescopes like Hubble, we can't see through the dust in, in the plane of our galaxy. So when we're looking towards the galactic center, lots of the gas and dust actually obscures our view of seeing that part of the sky. But with infrared light, it can travel through that dust, and so we can see beyond that. So Spitzer is actually helping us determine where the edge of our galaxy lies. We can see far out compared to optical light. And it's also shown that our galaxy is full of these cavities or bubbles. And they were created when massive stars, they actually blast out wind, creating uh, kind of these bubbles as their radiation spreads into the surroundings. So that's our fourth discovery. I saved the fifth one because this was my favourite one. <laughs> um, the fifth discovery that I'd like to mention is that Spitzer discovered Saturn's largest ring in 2009. Now, most people, hopefully, if they've looked at pictures of Saturn or even been lucky enough to look through a telescope, you'll probably be able to see the two brightest rings. So the A ring and the B ring split by a bit of a division or a black kind of ring. Um, a bit more inner towards, the, towards Saturn, you get the still bright, but less bright C and D rings, the inner rings. Um, even from that, if we go a bit further out, uh, for a long while, we thought that the most outermost ring was the E ring. Now, normally it's too faint to see with optical light, but actually the Cassini mission that orbited around Saturn was able to capture an eclipsing moment where it was able to make out that very faint E-ring. It's my favourite image of Saturn. It is a lovely, it's a lovely, yeah. incredible image. It's called the Day the Earth Smiled. And apparently, yes, of course. Yeah. if you zoom into a part of that picture, yeah. there's the little blue dot the of tiny, the Earth. Tiny yeah. Yes. Lovely image. Um, so this ring is really, really big, and it's also the outermost ring. In fact, one of Saturn's moons, Enceladus, lives within that E-ring, and it's got geysers on its surface that are spewing out material, and we think some of that material is actually feeding that outer E-ring. Now, this ring is about 300,000 kilometres in size. So it starts from about 175,000 kilometres from Saturn, and then extends out to about 470,000 kilometres away. But that is nothing compared to what Spitzer discovered. So the even further out, largest ring that has been found doesn't reflect much visible light either. Um, it's made of mostly cool dust, which actually glows brighter in infrared light. And that's why Spitzer could spot it. Now this ring is huge. Remember the E-ring is 300,000 kilometers in size. This one uh, is about 12 million kilometers. So it starts out about 6 million kilometres from Saturn and extends out to about 18 million kilometres. It's, it's almost one-tenth uh, the distance between the Earth and the Sun. It's mental, isn't it? Yeah, it's about a fifth of the distance that the Sun is from Mercury. So we're yes. talking about an incredibly large ring. And this dust that makes up this outer, e uh, outer largest ring is actually thought to have come from cosmic impacts. So another one of Saturn's moons, a more distant moon called Phoebe, is often hit by cosmic material and it sheds some of its material to form dust particles. Now Phoebe is quite a dark moon and the dust is also quite dark, which enables us to think that that's probably where this dust comes from. But another one of Saturn's moons, this one is called Ipetus, is a rather icy moon. And because it's really icy, it's really bright white in colour. Ice reflects the sun's light very well. And for a long time, we were really surprised by Epitus. It was a really mysterious thing because one side of its surface was really, really bright white as we expected it. Yes. And then the other side was really yes. dark. 
And what we found is that because Ipetus is a tidally locked moon, it's the same side facing towards Saturn, the other side is facing towards that dust ring, that dust in that really large outer earring that actually comes from Phoebe, that moon, is actually being kind of put onto that moon, creating a dark side of that moon. So an incredible discovery that Spitzer Space Telescope has made, finding this ring has actually helped tie in some of the other kind of mysteries we had around Saturn and its moons too. So there are what I would consider perhaps the top five discoveries that Spitzer has made. An awesome happy birthday, 15th birthday to Spitzer. Um, But due to the nature of its orbit, eventually Spitzer is going to trail so far behind the Earth that it will be on the opposite side of the sun compared to our planet. Uh, The sun will block out our line of sight with Spitzer and then we won't be able to communicate with it. Now this won't happen until about 2020, so we're not far off. But let's hope there are a few more exciting discoveries that Spitzer will make before we lose communication with it. So there's my story for this month, Greg. Well, fantastic story, Dara. Thank you very much. Um, As always, we'll be putting our stories to the vote on Twitter. Um, We have the results of last month's Twitter poll. My fingers are crossed. Yeah, well, it worked. Uh, You won this one, Dara. Uh, 65% of the vote went for the Jupiter Moon story that you came up with. good story. Only 35%, unfortunately, for my uh, source of a neutrino story. But still, congratulations, Dara. Thank you very much. Well done. Um, As I said, we'll be putting our new stories uh, up to the vote on Twitter. That's at ROG Astronomers at the beginning of this month. Please do go on to there and vote for your favourite one. Uh, all that remains to say is to uh, keep listening to us on iTunes and SoundCloud. Please do rate us on iTunes if you have the chance to. Um, and we will see you again next month on Look Up. Mm-hmm.